Welcome to Life Continuing, conversations that explore consciousness, healing, and infinite existence. I'm Tanya Berg. In 1988, Leslie Lupo was crushed by a stampede of horses and had a profound near-death experience. Her book called Remember, Every Breath is Precious recounts Leslie's experience of this incident as she watched the accident unfold while standing outside of her body. The book then shares the details of her journey upstairs, which is her word for heaven, her talks with light beings, and the help she received in her decision to stay or return to Earth. Leslie is a gifted healer, an NLP specialist, and has a unique and rare gift for explaining the science behind intuition and spiritual phenomenon. She's the founder of Light Your Path, Cultivate a Life of Self-Worth, where she provides personal and group intuitive readings and workshops. Leslie serves on the steering committee of the International Association for Near-Death Studies in Tucson, Arizona, and is the vice chairman of the Spirituality Leadership Council for the nonprofit Eternia. I am so thrilled to have Leslie return to the show to discuss empaths and two types of souls that incarnate to elevate the planet, according to what she learned during her NDE. Leslie, it's so wonderful to have you back. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing fine. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, I'm so glad to have you here again. This time, I'm so excited. We're going to get more into what you call the Houdini kids. Now, you talked a bit about that in episode one. And for anyone who hasn't heard it, episode one is where Leslie talks about her near-death experience, a very rich and robust and fascinating journey into what Leslie calls upstairs, which is her word for heaven. Now, in that experience, Leslie also discovered some spiritual insights, things that can actually help us here on earth with our daily lives. And that's something she incorporates into her lectures and workshops and programs that we'll talk about a little bit later. But right now, Leslie, let's start talking about what you term Houdini kids. It's a very interesting and clever name for something that you call um, a bodhisattva. Now, can you define what a bodhisattva is? Yes, um, it goes with the Eastern religions and philosophy on reincarnation, that the soul grows and grows and it continues to evolve, becomes um, more spiritually selfless and until they reach enlightenment. And the concept of a bodhisattva is someone who has not required to come back anymore, but chooses to come back to help. They are oftentimes very selfless. They are drawn to whatever religion is in the culture that they're born into, and they are helping evolve and elevate people. But they're not people that you would ever hear or know about because they definitely stay behind the scenes. And the best example that I can, we can talk about is the Dalai Lama, because he is a bodhisattva from Tibet, and he had to leave Tibet, and that's the only reason we know about him. He's the 14th incarnation of a man who reached enlightenment, and we don't know very much about the 13th Dalai Lama because he was in Tibet. But now that... Um, 
he's now global, we understand what the bodhisattva is. It's just an older soul, someone who has many, many lifetimes and is very spiritually um, egoless. And I know there's a concept because this is all going to make sense once you get to the um, Houdini kids. There's old souls. And then what are young souls? Young souls are the, the souls that are incarnating at all times. In other words, one of the things I learned upstairs was that the world was a one-room schoolroom and that we had to think of it that way as far as um, you could go into a dinner party, be sitting next to a CEO of a Fortune 500 company who may only be in second grade emotionally and spiritually, and yet the PhD is bringing you your water because it has to do with how we balance our life, how we, um, how mature we are emotionally, how we, you know, are drawn to having a spiritual connection. And um, so a younger soul has just had a couple of incarnations. And it's interesting because it correlates with people like Erickson or Piaget when they talk about developmental psychology, how, um, a one-year-old and two-year-old and three-year-old have a certain type of behavior. And as we grow and evolve and become more educated and become more emotionally mature, then we become less selfish and more selfless. And that's the same with the spiritual maturity. It's not necessarily a bad thing to be a young soul. It's just, say, let's just say it's inexperience. Yes. With lifetimes. Yes. It's not okay. ba bad at all. It's like if you went back to your grade school and you walked into the first grade class and you saw children that were struggling with their addition tables, you would know that they will get it eventually. And yet, hopefully, you would never feel superior to them because you know what four plus five is. So, a younger soul is just that. It's a good word for it, inexperienced. So we have the old souls, we have the young souls, and then we understand now what a bodhisattva is. So then let's talk about what you term Houdini kids, which is also called a blindfolded bodhisattva. So please walk us through that. Well, when I was in my near-death experience, I was given the choice to come back or to stay up there. And me being me, I wanted to know what, what happens in either um, choice. And my soul group that I would have returned to was specifically placing these elder souls. And they didn't say bodhisattva up there. They were just said elder and or older or elder. And we were placing them into families. Now. The original bodhisattvas, which have been incarnating with humans as long as we have been homo sapiens, would be going into a family that was spiritually evolved and noticed that the child had a spiritual inclination. And whether they were uh, born into a Catholic family or a Jewish family or um, a rainforest tribal family or a Native American, they would be all 
be the families would say this child has a spiritual yearning and bring it to the appropriate teachers. Around the middle of the 1850s, the um, consciousness had collected together to elevate the ability of bodhisattvas to reach out even further. Because when you go into a church or a synagogue or a temple or a mosque, the people that are there are tending to be maybe like in high school, you know, or junior high or college because they're on a spiritual quest. They feel a calling. But there's a lot of younger souls and not this is not a judgment. They're not bad. They're just totally uninterested and or struggling and have no clue. And where do those people go? Who can touch them? So what they started to do was take bodhisattvas and instead of placing them in a family that's primed for them, would place them in a very, very young soul for one specific thing. It was to break the chain of generational prejudice. That was the main job, is to be put into families and cultures and communities and to absorb what you were taught and make a difference choice in your life. Not in a rejecting, angry, throw them under the bus way, although that has happened, but more just like philosophically, I don't want to go in that direction. I had a friend at one point that grew up in a family of Oxford and Harvard trained doctors, and he did not want to be a doctor. He wanted to be in a band. So he was one of those people that just kind of goes off in a different direction. However, when we are being taught by the culture and community to be um, prejudiced against so-and-so or this culture or this sports team or this, um, you know, philosophy or gender, it's like the blindfolded bodhisattvas just couldn't absorb it. They may have tried, but by the time they were through with school, they just, they had to change a lot of what they had been taught. They just couldn't um, hate like that. And so that was the primary reason they were coming down. So let me paraphrase just w- what you've explained, just so I'm, I'm sure that I understand. You're saying that you, you, as part of your soul group, had a job upstairs to place these souls into these young families, young families being they've had less incarnations, still don't have the wisdom of many lifetimes, so they might not be as aware or as maybe sensitive to their family members' needs, let's say. So this blindfolded bodhisattva gets placed into a young family, and then the families, you know, support maybe some more negative traits or or just traits that are just not as open-minded or Mm -hmm. encouraging that sounds to me then a lot of families that have a lot of trauma and even abusive situations and who and who and also just children that don't feel like they fit in the black sheep of the family am I on the right track yes and I have to say that since my book has come out this is the single biggest Um, response I get in letters and emails of people that 
have said, I never fit in. I felt like I was an, a changeling. I had a lady uh, when I was having face-to-face -face clients, she put her head down on the table and cried because she knew there had to be a reason for her not fitting in. And the difference is this, when, when children are um, forced into these um, negative thinking patterns or taught to hate or taught prejudice, a lot of them are very upset by that. But the who the what I call Houdini kids, and I'll explain that in a second, are the ones that really, really will resist and in sometimes are very abused. Now they get older and they begin to find that inner light because that's what the problem is. They can't find a spiritual path. So they have to almost find their light within themselves. And that's the best part because once they find that, then everything is in order in their lives. Yeah, I just wanted to ask quickly, just again, for contrast sake, so a bodhisattva is typically placed in a family that is responsive to their spiritual needs, more or less. Yes, yes. And then, they, so. and then the bodhisattva themselves are more in tune with their own spiritual needs and essence. Yes. Is that correct? Okay. Yes, they kind of know who they are when they incarnate. They feel that strong strength. And then the blindfolded bodhisattva, again, in contrast, is unaware of their own spiritual essence, as well as being in an environment that is not conducive to being able to grow in that spiritual way. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. And mm -hmm. that forces them to take that inner journey because they cannot shut it off. They don't know who they are. They're not trained in a spiritual path, and yet they have to go within themselves, and they they feel a call, but they they don't quite know how to answer it, and they have to almost be very inventive. And do they then eventually find that spiritual connection, but is it sometimes in a very... Um, almost dramatic way or in a spontaneous way? It, it's not generalized like that. Everyone, it's kind of both. Some people, it's very traumatic. Um, some people never quite regain themselves. I'd say that lately people are becoming much more aware because people are beginning to use words like I'm an empath or I'm a highly sensitive person. And they're beginning to realize that they are wired slightly different, again, with no judgment. It's just discernment to know that they hear this inner call and have had to break away from part of their life, sometimes all of their life, sometimes part of their life, in order to be true to what they know in their heart is right. And it's never hate, and it's never excluding others. It's inclusive, and it's love. And how did you come uh, to term them Houdini kids? Well, blindfolded bodhisattvas. When I first came back from my near-death experience, I had entered it 
borderline atheist and my whole social life and culture reflected that. And when it came back, obviously I couldn't go back to what it was before because I knew things and I knew that there is another side and there is, you know, we're not just going to go into ashes. And I had to reformulate myself. But I was thinking of the terms of bodhisattva and blindfolded because they are blindfolded. And then one day I'm watching a documentary on uh, magicians and there's Houdini. And they blindfold him and that caught my attention. They put him in a, tied him up with a rope or a chain and put him in a bag and threw him in a river. And that's exactly what the soul does. That's a very, very old soul. And they come down and they have to deal with, um, our cultures pretty much shame us when we're young. Many, many people are very treated in using shame as a motivational device. And I think that's also one of the other releases is that if someone comes up and punches you in the face and steals your purse for a kind of generalized reincarnation, that means you punch someone in the face in your previous life and you have to go through it. And that's not exactly how reincarnation works. However, when some of the children have such tough lifetimes and they say, why did it happen to me? People will always say, well, you just brought in some bad karma. You must've done this to someone else. And that's really um, makes them heart sick because there's such pure love. They can't ever imagine doing something like that. And so that's why when you realize you, you literally volunteered for that childhood, so that you could break the prejudice chain, it gives people a huge sense of relief. And Houdini kids just rolls off the tongue a lot better than blindfolded bodhisattvas. So that's why I switched to Houdini kids. I like it. <laughs> well, it um, is. It's like you're tied up, you're thrown into the water, and you have to do everything yourself to get out of that programming. You, there's no teacher. There's no bibbidi-bobbidi-boo. And that's critical. The term indigo kids, that's another part of this uh, realm that you learned about upstairs. Can you talk about indigo kids? Well, at one point when I came back in my and started integrating back into my lifestyle, so many radical things changed because it was almost like every two or three weeks I was bumping into someone who was a medicine person or someone who was a Buddhist or, but deeply spiritual people that I would wind up um, sitting down and, and, you know, opening all those parts of me that I had opened when I was in college that I had shut down. And um, I met this woman who was a medicine woman and she and I became fast friends. We still are today. And she was very helpful at helping me understand like the visions I began to have, etc. And at one point we were meditating because I just wanted to ask my guides upstairs, what exactly, when we're coming down to break this chain, how exactly does that help and benefit? And they gave me this analogy, which is 
excerpted out of my book. It's on my webpage for anyone who wants to go and read it. But it kind of showed how a, a Houdini kid falls into a muck. And by leaving the muck, by forgiving and constantly elevating and getting our inner light, we climb out of it kind of in a spirit body, but then all the swamp that we fall in becomes hard earth. Now, this was 1988 that I had met Dana. And when I'm having this vision and I'm standing on the muck and I'm just in my light body and I'm standing on just extraordinarily huge field of tiny little yellow and white flowers. It was very beautiful. And then I heard some laughter and I looked over my shoulder and I saw these kids, like 12, 13, 10-year-olds, you know, but that age group, like junior high kids, running and hitting the ground running. And it wasn't until a couple of years later that people began to speak about a level of consciousness that was incarnating now, called, and they called them indigo kids. And that was children who are extremely aware. They don't need anybody to tell them anything. They're just, um, and they hit the ground running and they're making significant changes. And every time you read about a 14 year old or a 12 year old who's got like 800,000 followers because they're helping to bring attention to, you know, children starving or animal welfare or Whatever, like that girl Greta is someone we would call an indigo child. Um, Who's Greta? Who do you mean? Greta. Oh, what's her last name? Oh, Thur is it Thunberg? Yes. Mm -hmm. The one that's very concerned with global warming. And she's very young. Over and over again, you see so many examples of these children who are inventing things, like this young boy who invented a way by wrapping copper wire in a certain pattern, he could tap it into his lamp and the lamp worked perfectly, gave perfect light, turned it on and off. And it was actually taking electricity out of the magnetic field that's around the earth. Or the young boy that was 17 years old and designed a plastic uh, floating uh, machine that you could put solar powered put in the ocean and it will just chug along and grab up plastic, you know, and then the boats can come and take the bags of black plastic. So there's just kids that are doing these outrageous things. Those are indigo kids and they're really good with what they do. And they're like, they're not put through any drama. They come into families that are just fine. They're healthy. They squinch the baby's cheeks and the kids hit and they support them in anything that they do. So that's the next group. And even today, we've got bodhisattvas still incarnating. We have Houdini kids still incarnating. And we have indigo kids still incarnating. And all three groups of people or souls that are incarnating are elevating the planet. Yes. In their and, own way. Yes. And learning cooperation, learning to help each other, you know, and um, realizing that humanity is one tribe 
and the infighting between the the feuds that go on it's like a houdini children cannot be taught to keep the feud alive so if you go to the hatfield and mccoys and they would say you have to hate this person because his great great grandfather shot our great great grandfather the houdini kids would go don't you think it's time to just put this down you know they they can't continue they can't they can't hate just because they're told to and that's what's going to evolve our consciousness over time is this kind of attitude it's dropping arms it's letting go forgiving and moving forward elevating humanity yes mm -hmm. the thing about bodhisattvas is they come in so many different flavors i remember reading an article about a man and his he lived in some place in los angeles that was poor and there were a lot of gangs around and his son, who was really studious and on the sports team, was going to go to college. He was a junior or senior in, in high school and very, very good at what he did. And some gangs got in a tussle with him, and he got shot, and he was killed. And when they told the father, the father started crying, and he said, two boys died tonight. And he made it his mission to meet with this boy, speak at his um, sentencing and visit him weekly in prison and teach him how to read and elevate him, you know, and it, there's just so many magical things. And that would be someone that we would say is a bodhisattva. You know, they come and they're thrown into extreme circumstances, yet they stay centered in love and they, they heal and they heal around them. So bodhisattvas aren't all just spiritual teachers. They're people that elevate because that program made it all over the world when that man had that experience and it touched a lot of people to recognize what level of forgiveness that was. It's very heartwarming and inspiring. The concept of Houdini kids, as you've said, people have responded to you over email and have shared their stories and have been grateful to have like a theory, a concept to explain their traumas and why their lives turned out the way they did. Let's move on to your programs and how you incorporate some of this into what you call your peer or patient program. For many years, I did relationship workshops. And the core of it is learning to love ourselves because um, people that are older souls will be selfless, but then be pushed into being selfless to a fault. And there's a lot of really wonderful understanding about loving everyone. And there's a big push for the unconditional love. And what I draw the line at is that when you say, um, when people will post about you must love everyone, you know, and yes, you must, but there's a line to be drawn. And especially with older souls that don't have the spiritual training like the Houdini kids, um, an empath will automatically draw to them narcissists, or they will draw to them what we call in psychology um, a martyr complex someone who really enjoys their suffering and is not going to let it go no matter how many times you jump in the river and drag them out, they are going to throw themselves in again. 
And there comes a time in most people's lives where they say, I can't do that anymore. But with the peer or patient, one of the things that I'd like people to consider is that to love unconditionally does not include the word vulnerability in the definition. So if you take someone like a serial killer, um, like Charlie Manson, and if you found him 2,000 years ago in ancient Rome, he would have been tossed in the Colosseum for sport. And thank God we have evolved from that. And now we look at him and we say, you are God's son, and we will treat you humanely, but we're going to keep you in prison until you die so that you, no one can be hurt by you. But let's say someone had called you up on his 80th birthday and they said, you know, he's been in prison 40 years. He's 80. You know, would you want to take him home for the evening? We'll give you the dinner and you could just bring him back tomorrow. Nobody in their right mind would do that because now I'm vulnerable. And that's why I think whether it's emotional or physical or even financial vulnerability, we need to make sure that the only people that we have in our inner circles are our peer groups. And by peer group, I mean the same kind of values, the same level of emotional maturity and spiritually open-minded and just relaxed people that aren't always going into melodrama or being very selfish in the way they treat you. So part of that exercise is building your sanctuary is you get a, um, a, a format to of yourself with 12 circles around it. And there's a lot of instructions on how to do it, but it's, it's learning to have some very gentle boundaries because the problem with empaths and highly sensitive people and Houdini kids is they, they feel almost guilty, you know, if you, if you have the feeling that I can't sit down to eat until everyone is fed, that's a wonderful selfless feeling. But people can be unknowingly and, and certainly not deliberately picking up to the point of I can't sit down until everyone has eaten in the world. They, they feel very difficult. Uh, they feel it is very difficult. They feel it is selfish for them to think of themselves or ask for things. And so what we're just trying to do is just like if you took a, I went to grade school, we had kindergarten through eighth grade. But when we had recess, the second graders didn't go hang out with the eighth graders. We kind of pooled in our little groups just for the fun of it, to be able to, to relate to people that um, like that. So building a sanctuary is learning to be in a place where the only people I'm vulnerable to will never hurt me. And if they do, I mean, accidents happen, they fix it. Like they, they change, they will apologize and they won't do it again. If we have dysfunctional people, they could be friends or family or in-laws or neighbors or people at work, we can unconditionally love them, but they're kind of on an outer circle where they're not, we're not vulnerable. So when we come to vulnerable love, I call that intimate love. And it's not just romance, it's with families and friends too. We can love a dysfunctional mother. I have a client whose mother would make Joan Crawford look like Mother Teresa, you know, and she's just so extreme. 
and she loves her now out at the 12th circle and she does her duty as a good daughter, but she is not emotionally vulnerable. And that's what that peer or patient, because we want to have the people that are closest to us be our peers. And the reason I use the word patient is I was a psychologist for many years and in every state, in every country, there are laws against dating your patient. And I can't tell you how many people and marriages, when I did marriage counseling too, were, were breaking apart because one was trying to fix the other. And that's why I say never date your patients. If you feel you have, meet someone and they are dysfunctional, you accept them as they are and you don't tinker with them. You don't, it's like if, if assemblies required, put the box back on the shelf. You have to be with your peers to be vulnerable. I love it because you also say, fall in love with facts, not potential. Potential. Oh, everyone is always about what this could be. And I'm like, okay, well, what if it never hits that spot? You know, it's just, again, if, if we love ourselves, if we include ourselves in our decision, then we really are able to make wise decisions that are not going to, and not in an emergency. If your best friend calls you at three in the morning and says, my car broke down, I can't get an Uber, go get them. But not someone that just pretends to be your friend and calls you in emergency and then never calls you again. There's just gentle, gentle boundaries. You know, it's, um, and the other thing is this, you really can't love someone because if I don't love myself, my love is going to be selfish. If I want someone in my life because they make me feel good, that's, that's, that's not the way, that's not selfless love. So the ideal is having two people that are equal maturity and loving each other selflessly as best friends. You include that. In fact, one of the exercises in my workshop is called, you know, have a best friend, best lover for life. And it's learning how not to try to fix or change things. It's like take them as they are or walk away. Let's talk about trust because you have an interesting, let's call it a middle way of viewing trust when it comes to any kind of interpersonal relationship. <laughs> That's how this whole thing started. After my near-death experience, I went through divorce and I began to reconstruct my life again. And I dated a man that was such a blatant liar. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a Chicago Cubs fan. What can I say? I'm, I'm optimistic, you know. I never really look for the bad in people. I don't lie. And so I don't want to walk around being paranoid. So I was really upset by the fact I found out that, um, you know, he was not who I thought, what he was, who he said he was. And my guides came in and they showed me that I was trusting everybody right away. And as I pondered on it later, I realized we do live in a black and white society. It's like, it's love or hate. It's, it's, there's no middle ground like Rumi talked about. And if I had come on your show and said, you know, Tanya, I never trust anyone I meet. You would say, whoa, she's a little suspicious. Or if I had said, Tanya, I trust everyone I meet. 
people would say, hmm, maybe a little bit naive, but I prefer to go into a relationship and not trust or mistrust. I mean, how can you trust a stranger? You don't know them. Trust is something that should be earned. However, it doesn't mean we treat them, we treat people with respect and we treat them in a very gracious manner and we uh, objectively observe how they walk their town, how they talk to the busboys, how do they handle traffic jams, how do they talk about their future desires and dreams. Um, a lot of people in the first few months, you see so many red flags that we go racing by because we are indoctrinated into that true love conquers all, and it doesn't. And I'm definitely not saying don't trust anyone, don't forgive anyone, or anything like that. It's just take your time to trust. So if you can be objective and not mistrust or trust, just wait and see, and start saying things like, this really seems to be a great business deal, or it seems to be a great person to date. Because if you start saying, this is the one on the second date, everything in your discernment shuts down and says, okay, I'm not needed, go for it. And we just want to be a little more objective and take our time. Because I'd say that 90% of the time that someone has let us down or stabbed us in the back, we've seen them in the first six months, we've noticed that kind of selfishness directed at other people or other situations, but it's not directed at me. Therefore, I don't think of it. I just love how, you know, you combine your spiritual insights from your near-death experience then with psychology to create such a really important program, such as the peer or patient, to really help people live well now while they grow, you know, their their inner essence, their inner soul. It's just, I just love what I'm hearing because this is something that plagues many, many people. I had a really wonderful um, email on someone that built their sanctuary. And she said, I'm totally safe and I can live without any suits of armor that I used to have to go put on to be near my family. She always had to put on all these like layers to go near her family. And now she can walk in there, just be herself. She's light. She's happy. She knows where they are in that grid work. And she's, she feels safe because she's not emotionally vulnerable. And she, I mean, if her mother was sick, she'd go and take care of her without a problem. So it's interesting to be able to love truly unconditionally. You have to have a little bit of a space between the two of you. And I, I also hear that from what you're saying, though, with gentle boundaries. On another extreme, we have people that have to say have no contact with certain family members or just someone in their circle because the level of or the lack of support, or even if there's abusive tendencies, psychological or physical, obviously, but sometimes there just has to be no contact, even with a very close family member. And that is something that is, you know, society sort of looks down on and questions, but people who are in that situation know 
for certain that that's what's necessary. And I, that's what I'm hearing from this program. Sometimes that extreme is necessary. I think that forgiveness and vulnerability are two separate issues. Forgiving someone, no matter what they've done to you, is critical because to forgive, we objectively look at them and say, wow, you really are twisted or you're wrong or you gain pleasure by hurting people. And that's your curriculum. That's your journey. But I choose not to be victimized and we have to part ways. Now, if they change sincerely and they want another chance, there's nothing wrong with giving people a second or even third chance. But the vulnerability does not automatically come because we've forgiven them. So if they're still dysfunctional and they spew a lot of negativity and they're verbally aggressive or physically aggressive, we have to, for our own peace of mind, release that because we don't deserve that. Nobody deserves that. And if they need to vent, they've got to recognize that it's their fear doing that and you're not their teacher. When the student is ready, the teacher will come. And if you give advice once or twice and they're still doing that, you're not their teacher and they're not ready. So it's just having that spatial distance, you know. That's why I've got the 12 circles, because the people on the edge are a distance from us and they can't hurt us. What are the 12 circles? It's in that um, peer or patient there you map out the people that in your life, you draw little dots and you map out these people so that you can get that sense of space and recognize that, um, in fact, the 12th circle is what I call the mountain range because everybody on top of a mountain looks gorgeous because to see the mountain, you got to get at least a mile back. So they can right. be and raving and hissy fitting and they just kind of look like they're waving so you can wave back but you understand that you've got this space concept so if they're slashing with words or biting you you you're you're safe they can't hurt you i like that and that's all in your program and that's something that you offer online now do you offer this in a group format online or is it all just one-on-one it's one-on-one -on -one for the moment. And I've got a couple more exercises to put up there, but probably by next summer, I'm gonna start doing groups. You know, it's just, um, I've always done it face-to-face -face because I like the energy of working with people and eventually we'll be able to go back into groups again. But for right now, I'm just trying to get everything out of my head onto paper. Because a lot of the workshop, most of the workshop is just in my head. Because when people do it, they've got an outline, but they have to take a lot of notes. Because when you're writing, you remember it better and you process better. So I put it in a format that they had to do a lot of writing so that they would remember it. But that's good because then it really goes in deep for people. Yes, very deep. People can get in touch with you on your website, lesliejoanlupo.com. Right. And L-E-S-L-E-Y, Joan Lupo, because if it's L-E-S-L-I-E, -E, which most people do, it never gets to me. No problem. I'll make sure that's in the show notes for people to click on the link. 
So Leslie, that's amazing information. Like I said, I just love how we have spiritual insights that really do help us with our incarnations, our lives to live better and be better and evolve. It's the perfect combination. And I'm so grateful that you are here again today to share your story and share your insights and wisdom. There's so much to learn from this. I really enjoy it. Leslie, is there anything, any final notes you want to make or any points you want to make today about anything we talked about, Houdini Kids or your program? I think that it's just the basic core thing was um, to include yourself in your decisions. Is that one of the simplest sentences that brings us great clarity is this in my highest good too? It's not my highest good only, but it will prevent us from being used by the narcissists that these sensitive people pull in. And it will also begin to reflect how we do love ourselves because self-love is not conceit or arrogance. Self-love is rooted in humility. True self-love and true self-confidence, people are very humble about their gifts. That's true self-love. And self-love is key to any type of spiritual growth. Those are very wise words, Leslie. Thank you so much for sharing this. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. You're always welcome here. I hope we can speak again. Oh, absolutely. Anytime. Thanks, Leslie. Thanks for listening to Life Continuing. A special thanks to Leslie Lupo. For more on Leslie and the Houdini Kids, please go to lesliejoanlupo.com. The advisor to the show is Amanda Capito. The music for this podcast was composed by Richard Farron. I'm your host, Tanya Berg. You can find all of the episodes on Apple, iHeartRadio, Good Pods, and most other podcast players. If you're enjoying these episodes, make sure to subscribe and leave a rating or a review. And be sure to join me next time, where we'll continue this conversation about life continuing.